Amen. You may be seated and good morning. Y'all doing well? All right. I'm good. I'm Listen, I get to preach, right? This is this is my happy zone and uh, I I love preaching and teaching God's word and it's just something that uh yeah. It's, it's my fun place. So if I've not met you, my name is Steve. Uh, it's my privilege to be the pastor here. And uh, two quick things. First of all, whatever you do, don't miss next weekend. It's one of our really fun weekends of the year. Baptism weekend. Uh, I understand we've got uh, like 20 that are being baptized. So if you've come to faith in Christ and you have not followed the Lord in baptism... Make sure the class today, and even if you can't make the class, we can get you worked in. We'd love to have you a part of that. But here's the thing. Next week, the chaos begins. I have been told there's going to be fencing up. There may be uh, machinery over here. Uh, so that parking over, and thank you. By the way, thank you to all of you that park over here in the grass. We appreciate it. Uh, it's just from now on, we're going to have to kind of shift south to that ball field up there because this is all going to get tore up so um, some of you who normally come late you know who you are it's going to even be a little harder so I'm just trying to give you that warning and uh, and whatever you do I trust that you're praying about uh, being a part of our phase two pledge you've been praying about it the biggest I talked a lot about that last week and the biggest question I got is um, from folk to say, hey, I pledged in, in phase one and I've been giving, but I really kind of lost track of where I'm at. So how do I figure that out? So if you go to the, uh, our app or you go to our website and you go to give, it takes you to the, to the push pay app. And if you log into that uh, and you go, I want to manage my account where you go, uh, if, you're, if you're online, it's over on the left. If you're on the mobile, you've got to hit the little three bars and it comes down. But it has a place that says campaigns. And if you click on that, it'll say phase one uh, campaign and it'll tell you what you pledge, where you're at to all that. It's also where you can actually just put in your, your uh, phase two. So thank you all so much for doing it and being a part. It's great. If you got your Bibles, we are in the book of Revelation. Uh, these letters to these seven churches. Today we're looking at the church, the letter to the church at Thyatira. And so we're going to start in verse 18. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. So as I read out loud, if you'll follow along, that would be great. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent 
of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the church of Thyatira. Let me give you a little background, and then we're going to dive in, because this, this is one of the most unique of the letters. He changes some things up. We'll see as we go along. The church of Thyatira. Historically, Thyatira was a, a smaller city. It served as a military outpost for the defense of Pergamum. So if you were with us last week, we talked about Pergamum. Pergamum is the capital. I showed you some cities or some pictures of the city. It's up on a hill, and there was a huge valley. Well, if you go down that valley southeast about 40 miles, you would come to Thyatira. And Thyatira was put there as this military outpost because back in the day, uh, you know, things changed hands a lot. Kings and armies would come and they would fight and they were overcome and another one would come. And so Pergamum being the capital, they put this city about 40 miles down this valley because this is the way the armies would have had to come. And so they would be, in essence, that first line of defense, but it would also give time for someone to get from Thyatira to Pergamum and let them know, hey, there's, a, there's an army, invading army that's coming. And so, honestly, it's probably not where you wanted to live. <laughs> I mean, so they were attacked, they were defeated, they were inhabited, they were attacked, they were defeated, they rebuilt, they were attacked, they a zillion times in history. Uh, that's what they were there for. Uh, but then when the Romans started coming to power in the 200 BC time framework, uh, Rome was this great military power. Uh, and there were not a lot of invading armies. And so Thyatira began to know, know this time of peace. They they weren't being attacked. They began to prosper and they began to grow. Uh, it never became as large as Ephesus or Pergamum. Uh, and it was really known as, best way I could pro probably put it, it was kind of a blue-collar uh, blue city. Uh, people here worked with their hands. They were, you know, kind of the, uh, the ones that were wool workers. Uh, that was, I mean, obviously they live in a valley, which... If you're in a valley, there, it's very hard to defend yourself, but it's also down where the water is. So there were fields, and, and so having the herds and the flocks and all of that, and that's kind of what they were known for was wool and dyed fabrics. They grew this thing there called the matter root, which was what you would crush and you would put in to make purple dye, which kind of reminds us of actually the first time we hear the city of Thyatira in the Bible. It's back in the book of Acts. 
Remember, Paul has come over to Greece. He's in the city of Philippi. On the Sabbath, he goes out by the river where, where the Jews would gather if there was no synagogue. And there, we're, we're told, he meets a woman by the name of Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Excuse me, a seller of purple fabrics. That's what they made. That's so she she's a businesswoman. She's there, and she uh, she was a worshiper of God and was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What she became a follower of Christ. She actually had Paul and Silas has stayed in her home. We don't know. She then ultimately went back to Thyatira, took the good news, and that's kind of how the church began, or if it was somebody from that area and one of the churches that Paul that brought the gospel there. But there's this church there, and it had grown, and it had prospered. And so now we're another 30, 40 years down the line, in the late 90s AD. And the primary source of persecution of spiritual pressure that the believers here dealt with was trade guilds now if you remember we last week we talked about pergamum their primary pressure as christians was emperor worship emperor worship was uh the worship of the emperor of rome and that every subject had to one time a year go throw some incense on the altar let it burn and say Caesar's Lord, which most everybody could do, but a Christian couldn't do. If you were here a couple weekends ago when Trevor talked about the church at Smyrna, their major persecution was actually from Jews because they had there was a large Jewish community and they were seen to have left Judaism to come to Christianity. So that's the pressure they were facing. Here, it's really neither of those. This is primarily a Gentile town. It, emperor worship wasn't a big thing, but they had these trade guilds. Uh, so they found uh, inscriptions in, in the ruins that are there. In fact, I wrote some of them down. There was a wool workers trade guild. And when, you, when I say trade guild, think union. That's kind of the idea. Leather workers, potters, bakers, slave uh, dealers, uh, those that made were bronze smiths. And so they, they formed a union. Now, I realize we live in a right-to-work state, okay? So this may be foreign to some of you who were born and raised here, but it was foreign to me when I came here some 30-odd years ago because I came here from the Midwest, the heart of Union Place, right? I, I grew up by Cleveland, uh, and so we had auto unions uh, for both Ford and GM, there were the unions that ran the steel mills. There were the unions that were the shipbuilders. That's what I came from. I understood unions. And in, with unions, uh, they're, the, you know, obviously trying to get everybody to be a part. And they don't want people who are non-unionized to work because, you know, then that diminishes their power. And so it's a very strong system. And that's what they had. Well, here's the problem. Every trade guild, every union had their patron god. 
And so when they would come together and they would ha- want to have their times to have everybody together, they would throw a festival to their God and they would sacrifice to their idol and then they would eat and party and do all the things that they wanted to do. Well, as a Christian, if you didn't want to go and you didn't want to participate, that put you on the outs. That affected the wallet. That affected your ability to get work. That affected your ability to be a part of the economic system. And so this was where that pressure point for Christians was to be able to, again, be in the world but not of it. How do we navigate this? Because I want to work. I want to provide for my family. But I can't, I can't worship these patron gods. The first place we begin to see a little bit of a difference about this letter then is with the author. To the angel in the church of Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So the speaker. Now if you've been with us, every time you get to this, you go back to chapter one because the... In chapter 1, you have this very detailed description of Jesus. And it talks about all these different things, like the fact that his eyes are burning fire. You go back to chapter 1, you find that. You know that's what it's referencing. Here's the first time it doesn't do that. It calls him the Son of God. In chapter 1, it never references Jesus as the Son of God. It references Jesus as the Son of Man. Verse 13. As the son of man, it's the reference to Daniel and Ezekiel and the one that Jesus used so much of himself. The focus, of course, is on his humanity, his compassion and all that. The idea of the, that he's the son of God, though, speaks more that he is the almighty God. He's coming in judgment. He's coming in authority. He's coming to judge and so, and as we're going to see, there's reasons for that because of what's going on in the church. But this is that first little bit of a change. Then it talks about his eyes being a, a, a burning fire, like again, back in chapter 1. So I don't want to belabor this. We've already talked about it, but it's the one he sees it all. He knows it all. His eyesight is able to look past the facades. It burns to what's really there, what's in the heart, what's going on. His feet are like a burning bronze it's pure it's been melted in a fire he is holy he is righteous he is altogether pure that's the idea of who is talking about this and now he gives his commendation to them and that is uh, verse 19 i know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. This is a church where they served faithfully. This is a church that was engaged in the ministry of the gospel. We talk all the time about living on mission. This is a church that did that. He says, I, I know your works. And I know your love and your faith and your 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 perseverance in all of this, your service. Folk, can I just remind you? that as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Christ, that we were saved to serve. 
You know, today I think we, we, we've lost this in, in 20th century Christianity, right? We, we have our churches and we come and we do our thing for an hour and then we go out and we think, you know, hey, we checked that box. But that's not what the church was ever to be. A church was a community, a church with a, a, a fellowship of believers and how we minister to one another is that we serve one another. And that's one of the things that Jesus is looking for here. And he sees it and he says, man, I see your works. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2? He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God has created beforehand, or prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. And then he gives a little bit of a parallelism here. He mentions kind of the motives, um, your love and faith, and then what they would lead to, service and perseverance. You see, love produces service. It's, it's just the way life works. If you love someone, you will serve them. This is the way this happens. So if you're married and you tell your spouse, oh, I love you, but you never serve them, they're eventually not going to believe you. Trust me on this one. They're not going to believe you. You can say the words all you want, but you show love by serving. You could tell your kids you love them, but if you don't ever serve them, if you don't ever meet their needs, they're not going to buy it. They're going to grow, grow up and go to counseling, right? Trust me, to figure that out. Love leads to service. And his whole point is their love for Jesus led them to serving Jesus, using what God had given them to be his hands and feet. And then the second thing he mentions is their faith leads to perseverance. Faith, the faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the faith that Jesus with me knows what I'm going through, the, the faith that there's a better day coming, the faith that, that hey, if I follow Jesus and I don't participate in this and it affects that God's with me, he's going to meet my needs, that's what leads to perseverance. And that's what they had. And then he adds this, which is a really interesting phrase, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Their works of service multiplied. Didn't get less the older or longer they walk with Jesus, it, it was greater. Now, folks, that, that gives us something to ponder. Many of us have known Jesus a long time. A lot of us came to faith as children. A lot of us have known him for a number of years. Let me ask you, are your, is your service for Jesus greater today than it was two years ago, five years ago. This is the commendation. Now, now, here's the reality of life, folks. We all go through seasons of life, correct? As I told you, I came to faith in Jesus as a, as a young child, so I grew up wanting to serve Jesus. I can remember getting in middle school and early high school, and one of the ministries we had at our church was a bus ministry. Any of you ever work a bus ministry? 
Thank God that season is over in my life. Because I, I, what I can remember more than anything are the, first of all, I'm not a morning person, never been, hope to never be. But those cold Ohio mornings, you know, and it's below zero, and, and where they got their buses is when the school system had run them to the, like, the 99th aspect of their life. There just wasn't much left. They sell them to churches. And, and then churches would go pick up kids on Sunday morning, and that's what we would do. And, and so they're trying to get those things started, and the ice everywhere, and there just couldn't be heat in them, and you're trying to, you know, have a minister to these kids. It was, I'm, again, glad that season is over, but it was a season of service. And then as I look back, I, I had a wonderful season working with young people, uh, for seven years, and it was a great season of ministry. In the earlier service, we had a choir, and I was reminded that, you know, there was that season of ministry where Tammy and I actually sang in the choir. Trust me, they're much better now without me. Uh, seasons of ministry. But can I just be as blunt? There's no season in the Christian's life and season that's called retirement from ministry. It's not. You know, there come times when, when seasons when I can't do what I used to do, right? I don't have the physical strength or I don't have the stamina. I, I was thinking of my dad, you know, my dad who pastored and he came to that point of retirement and then his, his ministry here became the ministry of, he was the greeter. He was the one. If you ever got around my dad, man, he'd shake you in and he'd shake you out, man. That was, a, in fact, he always thought that was the four jobs of the preacher. You shake him in, you, you uh, shake him down at the offering, you shake him up with the sermon and then you shake them out right and, and that's what he wasn't doing the offering or the message but he was that's what he did but when he got sick and that season passed it wasn't time to quit serving Jesus it was just time to focus on something else and he always was a bit of a prayer warrior but but now this became his thing and I can remember many times I'd stop over and see him he'd just be on the back porch and he was praying he was praying for the church and he was praying for his grandkids and folk you never retire from ministry. The works of late are greater. Let me ask you, your service for Jesus, is it growing? This is the commendation. These are people who love Jesus and it's shown in service. Where are we serving? And then we get to the condemnation. And it's pretty strong. But I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Here's the condemnation. The believers of Thyatira, this reminds us a little bit of what we talked last week at Pergamum. They practice unholy tolerance. There's a woman in the church that is teaching things that are unbiblical. They are not true, and they're not dealing with it. They tolerated the woman. They tolerated her teaching, and it was deceiving the church, and it was moving people astray. It was moving people away from Christ. 
And this is the condemnation. Now, obviously, when you read this, this woman Jezebel, for those of us who grew up studying the Bible, immediately bells go off, right? Because there's a, there is a very prominent Jezebel in the Bible. She's in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with her, let me, let me give you a little bit of the story. After David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. Northern tribe called Israel, under a guy by the name of Jeroboam, who was not a descendant of David. The two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed with, uh, under uh, Rehoboam, which is the descendant of David. The ten northern tribes, their kings were wicked men. Jeroboam was the first, and he committed a great sin right away. What he did was, he says, I don't want you going down to Jerusalem for all the feasts because his fear was that they went down there, their heart would be drawn back to having one kingdom. So he set up two golden calves. Come and worship your God here at these golden calves. It was, it was the sin that ultimately doomed Israel. But then it was king after king, and they just got progressively more wicked until one guy showed up, and he took the cake. His name was Ahab, right? Fitting name. Ahab. And you get to 1 Kings chapter 16, and it says, And the son of Omri did evil, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to simply walk in the sins of Jeroboam, right? To continue walk, to, to, to worship those golden calves. What he did was he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he marries this wicked woman who brings in Baal worship and all of the immorality surrounding that, and he sets that up as their gods. You remember the story of Elijah on the Mount Carmel against all the prophets of Baal. This is that Jezebel. So the question is, when he says, you have a woman by the name of Jezebel, is it literally Jezebel? I mean, is that, did her mom not like her and just gave her that name? Or is it someone in the spirit of Jezebel? And the answer is we don't know for certain. But certainly she is in the spirit of Jezebel. And her false teaching is leading many to sin. It's leading many to sin. It's... And they're not doing anything about it. They're just passively standing by. I mean, in some ways, kind of reminds you of the Garden of Eden, right? When um, Eve is there talking to... To, to the serpent and Adam's just passively standing by and this is the condemnation and she's bringing in immorality she's bringing in godlessness and, and folk I, I just gotta remind you again God, God has called us not to walk the way the world walks He's called us to walk in purity. He's called us to walk in holiness. Now, we don't know. I mean, you remember if you were with us last week, we, he had a problem with the church at Pergamum because they went after the way of, of Balaam. And we talked that was, non, you know, it was, it was compromised with the world. It was kind of go and do what they want. I think if that was it specifically, he would have just said that again. Or the Nicolaitans, who, who it was like you could just live however you want. He would have just said that. 
I, I think the, the clue that we get here as to maybe what she was teaching is down in verse 24. He says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thessalonica who do not hold this teaching, who have not thrown, known the quote-unquote deep things of God as they call them, so another false doctrine that was going around, you see it in Colossians. You also see it with, this, uh, with John in his first epistle, 1 John, it is this idea that spirit was good, flesh was bad, you've been saved, you, you, your spirit is made, so what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. In fact, what John seems to be attacking in his epistle of 1 John is something that's going around is you've been made holy, you've been washed in the blood of Christ, you cannot sin, so now you can go and participate in all this stuff because it's not sin to you because you've been made holy, so you can go and, and kind of spy out. You can go to these festivals. You can participate in the immorality to see these dark things of Satan, but it won't affect you. And folks... That is just, it's a lie from Satan. Sin destroys. And you see it over and over in Scripture. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were in your ignorance before you knew Jesus. But like the Holy One called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Jesus saved us to make us holy. So often we have this idea, well, it was to make us happy. No, not necessarily. It was to make us holy. But he also knows that when we walk in holiness, we walk in alignment with who he made us, and that is the thing that truly will bring the thing that our soul desires, which will ultimately bring happiness and joy and peace. James puts it like this, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Walk in holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Sanctification. This is the work that we're going to walk after Jesus. Cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. By the way, the immorality there is the same word used here. It's the Greek word pornea, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Folk, we are called to live differently. Our salvation is not based upon what, how we live. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did for us. But now that we have been washed clean, we have been made new on the inside, how we live ought to be different. God loves his children, and he knows what's best for us is that we walk in alignment with what he made for us, which is his holiness and his purity. And again, you kind of got to look at the church of Jesus Christ today in America and you wonder, man, do we tolerate the teachings of people who just basically say, hey, you can go live how you want. As long as you, you know, show up to church. As long as you, you know, still give your money. Man, everything's cool. The Bible says, no, he's got so much more. 
He's called us to live in holiness. Here's the next change. Usually from here, he goes to the command, right? This is how you fix it. It's almost like in the midst of all this, he skips, you know, he's going to push that back and go right to the possible consequences here. He says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according uh, to your deeds. So judgment's coming. In fact, her, his whole point is, I've given her time to, to repent. She's not. So judgment's coming. And not only that, that judgment's going to be great anguish, trouble. It's going to affect those who follow her. It's going to be big. In fact, he even talks about death there. And again, I, today as Christians, we, we kind of go, oh, you know, we, we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. Because sometimes it's significant and severe. But sometimes it is. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about communion. He says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. He's not talking about those who are taking a nap. He's talking about those who have died, right? It's a part of the judgment of their sin because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And Jesus' judgment here is going to be known because it's going to become a testimony even to other churches. Almost like that Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to God about, hey, we brought all of this money, but they really didn't, which was, that wasn't the problem. It's the fact that they lied, and they lied to God, and they fell down dead. And it says all the church lived in fear, and you go, you think? <laughs> See, God has called us not to be perfect, be better than he's called us to follow him with all of our heart to walk in holiness and righteousness and purity and as we talked about last week what's the command here what's to repent to repent now can i just remind you what repentance is repentance is a change of mind and that change of mind is that i see what i'm calling good god calls sin and i'm beginning i'm going to agree with god on that and that leads to that change of behavior so to those who are involved in sin, they're called to repent. We as Christians ought to live in a spirit of repentance. That's the, the message of the gospel because none of us have this figured out perfectly. None of us walk in perfect holiness. All of us still drop the ball. Why? Because though my, my soul has been redeemed and I've been made new on the inside, my body hasn't been redeemed yet. And that's where the, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is there. And so as a Christian, I live the gospel so that as it speaks to my heart and I see things in my mind that I'm not, I'm not thinking right about, I repent and I turn it and I call it sin. And I know we're focused and he's focused on, on a lot of the sexual sin. And the reason is because sexual sin has such an effect on our identity. I mean, folk, <laughs> we're living in the world that's like the perfect, I don't know, test tube of that right so for 50 years we've turned against from what god has said as a as a culture and just said listen do whatever you want live however you want go after them. that'll make you happy have you noticed nobody's happy 
Nobody, everybody's angry, everybody's upset, everybody's got a grievance with somebody else, and they push farther and farther into all of the things of deviance that God has said, that's not who you are. Looking for that, it doesn't lead to that. What leads, what leads to a secure identity is following Jesus, walking in holiness, living in alignment with who? But can I just remind you, he's not talking He's not talking to the culture at Thyatira. He's talking to the church. And folk, we can, we can rag all we want on the world and what's going on out in the world, but that's really not his main concern. It's much of what's going on in me. And as Christians, we can say, well, I don't do that, I do this, but <laughs> quite honestly, we say that in a heart of pride. You know the pride Pride is like the first sin. You got a proud heart, you need to repent. You got a bitter spirit, you need to repent. You got a foul mouth and you criticize and hurt people with your words, you need to repent. You're involved in immorality, you need to repent. You're, you're living with someone that you're not married to in a sexual relationship, you need to repent. You're in a relationship with someone of the same sex, you need to repent. You got hate in your heart towards a brother, you need to repent. Folk, we're not perfect. But we are called to repentance. We're called to change our mind and say, that's not the way I'm to live. Because he has called us to holiness, to righteousness. And that is where we are going to find his best. And I am way out of time. I'm sorry. So here we go. He then addresses those who haven't been deceived. It's, it's there in verse 24. But I say to you, the rest of you who are in Thyatira do not hold this teaching who do have not known the deep things of Satan, as I called them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. It's just press on. Cling to truth. Walk in holiness. Yeah, I, I know you're in a tough culture. Just keep focus. Lean into your love and faith of Jesus. He's going to see you through all this. And then here's the promise. And again, one more change here. Uh, first of all, all the other promises start with, he who has an ear, let him hear. That actually comes last here. He starts with he who overcomes. But then there's a change there. To he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Oh. So we've been talking about how the overcomer is a believer. Everybody knows Jesus. It's who we are. And, and so it's our, it's our promise. It's our inheritance. But here he ties it not just to our promised inheritance, but he, talks it, he ties it to our potential inheritance. So not just the fact that we know Jesus, but to those of us who know Jesus and who persevere, who press on, who walk in holiness, who follow after the Lord. Then what does he say? Well, we get to rule and reign with him. Right, that's, we will in the kingdom have, it, it, it's the very, um, think of the parable of Jesus, of the, of the landowner who goes away and gives minus to his, his servants, and he comes back and he says, hey, you turned three into six, you've done really good, you know, you're going to be over six cities, and you took two and you turned it into four, great, right? It's that potential inheritance that we have for not only knowing Jesus, 
but following him. And then he talks about we get to walk with the morning star. And the morning star, of course, points to Revelation chapter 22. It's Jesus, right? Relationship with him. Folks, I know today I've just exclusively talked to Christians, people that know Jesus. But there's a dangerous thing to hear God's word and to not respond. Because your heart will become hard. My heart will become hard. That's why we're called to live in a spirit of repentance. To change our minds, to agree with God, to see what he calls sin, sin, and, and to deal with it.